Now, we're presently in a series together looking at Truth on Fire. We're basing it on a book by Adam Ramsey. And the whole point of heart behind the book and indeed our series is that of gazing at God until our heart sings. And the reason why we put this series together is because that's what we wanted throughout the summer. We wanted to spend time gazing at the Lord, seeing the Lord for who He really is and His character and His values and His worth, but not just doing it to increase our head knowledge, but doing it so that our hearts may be engaged. You see, the Lord God Himself, church, isn't just after your head. He's after your heart. He's after the core of who you really are. And so I've loved this series, and I'm looking forward to giving this message to you as well. I've entitled this message, God is Lovingly Relational. And you know, we always teach um, exegetically as a local church and expositionally. We tend to go through books of the Bible rather than taking texts and themes. But there are certain times in pastoral ministry where the text, in so many ways, picks you. It comes after you. And as I prayed for this message and even started to put the series together back in 2023 ready for this, I really felt the Lord put on my heart this parable that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I really believe the Lord wants to minister to you. This isn't just a message. This is the heart of the Christian faith and the heart, I believe, of what God has for you and wants for you. So we're going to look together at Matthew 13, and we're going to read together just one verse, but there's so much in it. It's Matthew 13, verse 44. It's entitled, The Parable of the Hidden Treasure, and this is what it says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has. And buys that field. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for the way that you address your people. And Lord, I pray that you would address them today. Lord, I have talked to you in private many times about this message, about this week. Lord, I do believe you want to go after your children's hearts. And so Lord, did you have your way amongst us? Help me to know where to pause, where to linger, where to move on. Lord, would your voice come forward this morning from your word? And would it change our lives as a result in your precious and holy name? Amen. I want us to begin this morning then by imagining the scene. It's first century Israel, and a Hebrew man walks along the road on a hot afternoon He's going about his daily business. He has his staff in his hand. His sandals are covered in dirt. His tunic is stained with sweat. And as he goes about his business in the heat of the day, he sees that where he's going is far off and he can take a shortcut. And it's the shortcut through a field. This is a really common thing to do in Israel in the first century. It was understood that fields could be accessed by anybody. They were effectively public property where you could walk through even when people owned it. This would be a normal thing for a Hebrew to do, and yet this was a shortcut like no other. Because as he walks across this shortcut, as he goes into this field today, he he sees out the corner of his eye a, a flash of light, something reflecting the sunlight. And so he walks towards it and he hits it with his staff and he realizes it's metal. 
So he gets down on his hands and knees and he sees that it is a corner of a box. Well, he begins to dig around the box. He begins to get his staff all around the box. And as he's digging out this box, he realizes without doubt it is a treasure box. See, it would be commonplace for people to hide their treasure sometimes. Robbers might come into your house and steal, so you would bury it in your field. But sometimes you'd forget where it was buried, or somebody would die, and so something would just be left there kind of forever until somebody finds it. And that's what happened to this man. So he starts to dig around the treasure, and as he gets over the top of the treasure, he realizes he can now open it. And as he opens it, his eyes are filled with joy. Because this treasure is the sum of all he had ever longed for. It was true riches, true glory. This would be such a joyful reality to own. So he closes the lid and he puts all the mud back over the box. And he goes back home, he runs back home, and he sells everything he's got. He sells his house, he sells his wine, he sells his extra clothes, he sells his shoes. He sells everything he has because of the joy of what it would mean to own that treasure. And so he sells everything he has and buys the field because of the surpassing worth of what it would mean to own and enjoy that treasure. Well, that's what, is to, what Jesus is talking about right here in this parable of the hidden treasure. That's the scene that we have here for us in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. And as with all parables, they're ultimately to teach us one thing. There's one thing that Jesus is trying to communicate to us through this one parable. And it's this. He's trying to help us understand that the greatest thing that we can ever find in life is the treasure of a genuine relationship with God himself. See, he tells us the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is the spiritual kingdom in which God sovereignly rules and reigns over his people. It's not a physical kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom in which he rules and reigns over his people. He cares for them. He watches over their coming and their going. He longs to be with them. He looks after them both now and forevermore. It's a spiritual kingdom then that we can enter into through faith in Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us we enter into the kingdom of heaven. We are forgiven of our sin. We are redeemed to God the Father. We are sure that heaven is our home. But within that kingdom, there is a great prize, a great treasure. There is a crowning jewel. And it's the reality that as you enter into the kingdom of heaven, which you do through faith in Christ, you can now have a relationship, an intimate and personal relationship with God himself. God is the gospel. The ultimate prize of the gospel is a relationship for you and I with God himself. And when you realize that, and when you find that, you're like a man who finds a treasure in the field and then wants to go away and sell everything he has because of the joy of what it is to know the treasure and have the treasure. Well, I have three points then this morning that I want us to examine from this text. Number one, a lovingly relational God. Number two, a lovingly relational example. And then number three, a lovingly relational opportunity. But I really come to this message burdened really with just one hope. And it's the hope that as we gaze at God this morning, 
and we see just how lovingly relational he is towards us, that our hearts would want for nothing else. My friends, have you found the treasure? Are you delighting in the treasure? Because if the answer is no, nothing else we ever preach from this pulpit really matters. This is the foundation of our faith. The relationship with God is the ultimate treasure. And it's what he's talking about to us right here in this text. Three points then, and here's the first. Number one, a lovingly relational God. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we simply read, God is love. It's not complicated. We are placarded before our eyes that God is love. You know, the incredible thing about that statement is you realize the fact that God is love doesn't just describe the way he behaves and the way he is. It actually defines who he is. God himself is love. And how do we know it? Well, we know it because the Bible tells me so. It's a song we've sung for years. The Bible tells me so. And it does. All the way through the Bible, we discover that God is love. All the way through the Old Testament, we're reminded that God is a loving God. When we first see God reveal, revealing his glory to Moses at Mount Sinai, this is what we read in Exodus 34 verse 6. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God is first revealing then his glory to Moses, that's what he wanted him to see. He is full of steadfast love towards him and his people. It's that which David then sings about in the Psalms. In Psalm 145, in Psalm 103, in Psalm 86 verse 5, we read, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. See, it's the steadfast love of God which caused Jonah not to want to go to the people of Nineveh. Jonah was a racist. That's the way he lived. And so he saw the people of Nineveh, they were his enemies, and he knew if he goes to them and he tells them about the glories of God and the gospel, they will repent and they'll find a relationship with God. I don't want that, so I'm leaving. And he was right. God is full of grace. He is full of love to them. And so in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, we read, And he prayed to the Lord, meaning Jonah, and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He was right. God is all of that. God is Love, and it's the phrase that we often hear repeated by the prophet Joel as the basis on what where God in his grace can forgive wayward people. Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, we read, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. How do we know God is love? Well, because the Bible tells me so. 
And my friends, this is always the way it has been. Jesus himself tells us in John 17 that before there was even time, before there was even a sun or a moon or stars or the earth in place, it isn't like the Godhead was like bored and lonely. Before even the foundations of the earth were in place, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoyed perfect unity together, perfect relationship together, and it was a relationship founded on love. They deeply loved one another. Creation, in so many ways, then was an explosion of that joy, an explosion of that love that they wanted to share with us. But it was there all along. In John chapter 17, verse 24, this is what Jesus says. He says, Father, I desire that they, meaning us also, who you have given me, may be with me where I am to see the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the earth was even in place, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoyed a perfectly loving relationship just by themselves. It's what some commentators call the divine dance. There was a divine dance between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They were perfectly happy, perfectly joyful, perfectly filled with awe, just with one another. And yet in His grace and in His love, He created mankind. And then seeing that we rejected Him, in His love, He pursued us. Why? so that we could come into the divine dance, so that we could come into a relationship with him again. And that's what we see all the way through the New Testament. See, in the New Testament, it's not primarily God's steadfast love that is on view, though that would still be true. But in the New Testament, it's actually God's sacrificial love. The word is agape in the Greek. It is God's sacrificial love, and it is this love that is most often on show in the New Testament. In fact, it talks about it some 259 times in the New Testament. God's sacrificial love, a sacrifice of himself. Why? To bring us back into relationship with the divine end. Back into relationship with God himself back into relationship with the one who made you and knitted you together in your mother's womb and knows you and wants to be with you. You know, the night before Jesus died, in John chapter 15, verse 13, this is what he says. He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is about to give his life away as a ransom for many. And on the night before he does that, he gathers his disciples together and he wants to teach them, listen, there is no greater love that you will ever see in this world or this universe than when somebody gives their life away for their friends. You know, we know that text, do we not? But it starts to dazzle a lot better when we realize, what type of friend were you to Jesus when he said that? Well, not a very good one. You see, when Jesus called you friend, you weren't his friend. Jesus loved you to the death before there was even one molecule of love in your hearts towards him. Jesus loved you to the death before you prayed even one word to him or read one verse of the Bible, even gave one cent about who he was. Jesus loved you to the death knowing every hell-deserving denial of him you would ever commit before you turned to him along with every sin that you would commit thereafter as you continue to reject him. And yet he did it for you anyway. 
For greater love hath no one than this, than someone lay down their life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you. In John 3.16 we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved you that he came after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told and gave his life away for you. Why? So that you could be brought back into a relationship with God himself. So that you could enjoy the kingdom of heaven. So that you could come back into a relationship that you were made for and designed for and designed by God to enjoy, but which you had rejected. For he so loved you that he gave his son so that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have eternal life in his presence both now and forevermore. My friends, that is love. Frederick Lehman, in his wonderful hymn, The Love of God, writes about it this way. I think he designs it and talks about this love so well. He said, Could we with ink the oceans fill, or were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. My friends, the love of God, as Paul tells us, is higher and wider and deeper and longer than we could ever have imagined. And he loved you enough to send his son to die in your place. Why? So that you could be brought back into a relationship, a personal and intimate relationship with God himself. Listen, the treasure of the gospel is a relationship with God. The ultimate prize of the gospel is you individually having a personal and intimate relationship with God himself. That's why he came after you. He didn't just come after you so that you could have quiet times. He came after you so that he could have a relationship with you. So that you could know him. So that you could be with him. So that you could talk to him. So that he could talk to you so that you could have a close and intimate relationship with you. He is the real treasure of the gospel. That's why John 14 and John 16, at least for me, are are so incredible. See, in John 14 and in John 16, Jesus tells his disciples, listen, I've got to go soon, and I'm going to be dying. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to kill me. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to go. And every time they're left scratching their head, what do you, what do you mean? But in John 14, they, they start to grasp, it sounds like you ain't staying. I mean, he's been with them for three years. They are, they are mesmerized with Jesus. They love him, they know him, they have spent every living day of the last three years with him. And now he's saying he's gone. And then he tells them, listen, it's better for you that I go. And they're, what do you mean? He's saying, because when I go, I won't leave you as orphans. I will send another one to you. I will send a helper, the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit comes into your life, both the Father and the Son will make their home with you and in you. That's the promise of the gospel. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, both the Father and the Son, through the Spirit, come to live in in you. They start to be in your life. Why? Because they want a relationship with you. They want to give you full access to him. They want you to know him. 
and love him and commune with him. God is the gospel. The man that the treasure found, the man that found a treasure in the field. He wasn't even looking for it, but found this treasure and then went and sold all that he had to get it. The treasure was a relationship with God. And so his disposition is, I don't care about anything else now. I just want this. And there is example after example in the Bible of men and women who have found a treasure and have enjoyed that type of relationship. And that's my second point, a lovingly relational example. You know, as I thought about all the, for instances, this week in the Bible, there are, there are hundreds. The disciples, for a start. The disciples walked with Jesus while he was here, both the 12 and the 120 and the many beyond. They walked with Jesus while he was here on the earth, and then through faith and through the gift of the Spirit, they continued to walk with him after. Even after he descended to the right hand of the Father, having received the gift of the Spirit, they knew the Father and the Son were with them and in them. So they carried on talking to the Lord. They carried on being with the Lord. They carried on being amazed by the Lord, which is why they wanted to live for him. Because they had a personal relationship with him. And the story goes on. You have others like Stephen and Barnabas and Lydia and the Philippian jailer. The story goes on. After, after individual, after individual, they put their faith in Jesus. The Spirit comes into their heart. The Father and the Son make their home with that new Christian and their life is completely changed. They start to have a personal relationship with God and it changes their life. And yet the example I, I really wanted to draw on today was the example of the Apostle Paul. I think he's a good example because he didn't exactly start off as a Christian, did he? <laughs> when you examine the Apostle Paul in the Bible, you find he did not seem to go to children's ministry as a child and sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. No, he did not. No, he... When we first introduced to Paul in the Bible, we see him in Acts chapter 7, quite frankly, as Christianity's most fierce opponent. When we are first introduced to Paul in the Bible, he is holding people's coats so that people can pick up stones and stone Stephen. He hates Christians. He would have hated you. Every single one of you, he would have had on a list. He would be coming after you. He was a Christian terrorist. He hated everything that Christ said he was, and he hated all Christians that sought to follow him. And so in Acts chapter 9, when he's on the way to Damascus, he's not going for a holiday or a vacation. He is going to find Christians, men and women, so that he can arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem so they can be in jail or even better killed. He is a Christian terrorist. And yet on the way to Damascus, he encounters the risen Christ. And in a moment, boom, he finds the treasure. He encounters the risen Christ. He realizes who he really is. He puts his faith in him as his Lord and Savior. At that moment, the Holy Spirit comes into his heart. And even as Jesus then removes himself and ascends to the right hand of the Father again, he still remains in his life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul rises and he goes forth and his life is radically changed around. In that moment, the Apostle Paul has found the treasure. He wants for nothing else. Everything else, I'm not that interested anymore. I just want Jesus. I want a relationship with Jesus. I'm not persecuting the Christians. I want to tell everybody about Jesus so they can become Christians. He finds the treasure. He finds the joy of a relationship with God himself. And his life is radically turned upside down. And it's in the book of Philippians where he talks about this. 
He talked about really what it was that completely changed everything for him. In some ways, he tells us about the intimacy of his life. Because in Philippians 3, verse 4b through to 8, this is what he says. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, humanly speaking, the Apostle Paul had quite a lot going for him. He was clearly a very gifted man. He had a lot of abilities. He had a lot of advantages, a lot of privileges. As a Jew, he had done everything exactly right. But what he tells us here is all those things, you can add them all up in my life. I count them all as lost, all as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of having a relationship with God himself. Nothing is important to me anymore. I don't even care about those things. I just want the treasure. The treasure has changed my life. The Apostle Paul was indeed a man who found the treasure in a field and then went away and sold everything he had for the surpassing joy of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. Listen, pay attention to the words, my friends. He does not say, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing of Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's no of there. He's not saying, you know, listen, I've spent time in the church and I can see that other people really know Christ, that other people, their lives have been changed by Jesus. And so I count everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of seeing those people that know God. That's not what he says. That would be knowing of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Just knowing of him. Likewise, he doesn't say, I count all things as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing about Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not what he says. It's not a group of doctrines for him. It's not a group of truths that he just sort of lives his life on. You know, when did you become a Christian? Well, I haven't got an exact date, but I read my Bible and I found a lot of things about it. What doctrine do you want to talk about? That's not it at all. He doesn't count all things as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing about Christ, just knowing about who he is and filling his mind, filling his gnosis, his knowledge of who God is. No, he considers all things as lost for the surpassing worth of knowing him, having an intimate and personal relationship with God himself. He considers all things as lost compared to the surpassing worth of actually having an intimate and personal relationship with God himself. That's what changed his life. That's what kept him going. That's what caused him to say, listen, whether I live as Christ or die as gain, I don't know. He's just all in because wherever he is, I have this relationship with Christ. And it changed my life. The Apostle Paul was like a man who found a treasure in the field and in his joy goes and sells everything he has for the surpassing worth of what it would be to know that treasure. And you know, I couldn't help but think back as I prepared this message this week to the moment in my life where I found the treasure. See, I was not like the Apostle Paul. I did grow up, grow up in a church. 
I've spent my entire life in the field, okay, using the analogy of this parable. I spent my whole life in the field. I came to church in my mother's womb. I have been my whole life in the field. And yet, as I came to church, many many teens, as you're here this morning, as I came to church week after week, I heard hundreds of things, I heard lots of things, but here's the reality. The treasure strangely eluded me. I could see there's something going on for other people. But I had not found the treasure myself. I was a reasonably compliant kid. I wasn't a difficult kid. And I quite liked the field. The field was great. Wonderful community. Wonderful people. Free lunches. It was awesome. We got to play soccer at the end. It was great. So I wasn't antagonistic. I was just in the field. I'm just hanging in the field. But the treasure, that was not mine. And that really got found out when I left home at 18 years old to move to university. I came from a very small town. There are no universities where I live. And most people in the United Kingdom leave home when they're 18 to go to university, and they don't come back. That's what I did. Left home at 18, I moved four hours away, 200 miles, and went to Cardiff University. And it was very quickly apparent as I left to university that I was, as Mr. John Bunyan calls, Mr. Facing Both Ways. I'm in the field on a Sunday. I'm hanging in the field because it's a community. They're nice people. That's great. And in the week, I'm hopping over the fence and I'm in the world because this seems really attractive over here. And I don't know know what, I mean, they've clearly found something that I haven't. The field's nice, but it must be different for them. Anyway, I like this stuff over here. And that was my life. I was Mr. Facing both ways. I was in the field some of the time and I was in the world the rest of the time. I'm doing two different things because I hadn't really found the treasure. And because I hadn't found the treasure, I started to make some very foolish decisions in my life. I was studying civil engineering at university, actually came top of the first year. And as soon as I started my second year, I told the academic professor that I was leaving the university because I was getting married. He thought I was a nut job. And I was a nut job. I'd met a girl six weeks before. She seemed nice. I liked her. I was following my heart. My understanding of love at that point was more Hollywood than the Bible. I'd found the one. So I left university. We bought a house together, me and my girlfriend at the time. We bought a car together. When I say together, it was all actually in my name because she didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of money. I started a job. I just worked in an upholstery company doing some admin just to get some money. And so I left university. I started to date this girl. We agreed to get married. We bought a house. We bought a car. Eight weeks before we were due to get married, she called the whole thing off. She decided she wasn't interested, and she was off. And my whole life came crashing down in that moment. I was 20 years old. I had a crappy job, getting paid barely anything. I'd given up university. I had a house now I couldn't afford, a car that I couldn't afford, And I knew for the first time in my life, I am an idiot. And I felt it. I felt it. I felt it. I felt conviction before the Lord that I've been a fool. I don't ask anybody about anything. I don't look for any counsel. I'm confident in my own eyes. And everybody else knew it too. Everybody else began to knew, I've been playing Mr. Both Sides. I'll be doing my thing. And i never forget, as I sat one evening, it was, I sat 
right by a radiator in my room, and the radiator was at my back. It was the middle of winter. I was freezing cold, so I sat against the radiator, against the wall. And as I sat there, I just began to weep before the Lord. Because I knew for the first time maybe in my life who I really was. And as I started to interact with who I really was, all of the scriptures that I'd got taught as a kid started to come back. And one in particular. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And I knew for the first time in my life at that point, he hadn't just died for the world. He died for me. He had come after me. And as I sat against that radiator, I just said, Lord, I am terrible. I am all over the place. But I put my faith in you as Lord and Savior. I want to follow you all the days of my life. I knew from that moment on my life would be different. And it was different. It wasn't like there was angels in the room. There wasn't, oh, there wasn't a shining light or anything of like that. Nothing actually happened. But I guarantee to you, from that day forward, my life completely changed. From that day forward, the Holy Spirit came into my life. I knew what it was to be forgiven of my sin. I wasn't reading now my Bible because I should. I was reading my Bible because I was amazed. This is the God who's changed my life. I wasn't then serving Jesus because I'm like, oh, I really should sign up for something. I'm just like, sign me up for everything. Jesus is amazing. My life's no longer my own. It's his, and I'm proud to say it. I was just so amazed that Christ would die for me, that he would come after me, and that through Christ, I can now have a relationship with God himself. I found the treasure, and I've never looked back for the last 28 years of my life. Jesus became amazing to me in that moment, and he has remained amazing to me ever since. It is right then that we keep the main thing, the main thing. But in in reality, my friends, as a pastor, here's the reality. When you find the main thing or when the main thing finds you, it keeps you. He holds you. He amazes you. Because it's a relationship. It's a relationship that begins. I found the treasure when I was 20 years old and it changed my life. I want to ask you. Have you found the treasure? And listen, this is real. You might have been coming to church for the last 30 years of your life. Congratulations. That does not mean you found the treasure. Are you amazed at Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that would be phrased as personal and intimate and amazing to you? Have you really found the treasure. And even if you have found the treasure, is the treasure still truly a treasure to you today? Now. Do you look back on a time where as I tell my story, you're like, yeah, I was like that when I was 20, but now 20 years on, yeah, you know, life's got busy. Do you still treasure Christ like you did when you became a Christian? Are you still amazed at him? Are you still having a relationship with him like you were in times gone past? Well, listen, if the answer to that is probably not, if I'm honest, but you desire it, there's something in your heart even now that's saying, I want to find the treasure like that. I want to know Christ like that. I want a relationship with God like that. Then I have good news for you. That's exactly why this parable is here. He's not giving you this parable to say, well, this is what you could have, but never mind. He's giving you the parable because he wants wants you to know, you can have this. 
This is what I want you to have. This is the gift of the gospel. God is the treasure of the gospel. And that brings me on then to my final and brief point this morning, a lovingly relational opportunity. See, maybe you're here this morning, you hear this parable, and you hear it with a sense of joy. Maybe as you hear about the story of the Apostle Paul, maybe and as I share my testimony with you today as well, you, you also hear these things with a sense of joy because you're aware this takes down, you down on a trip down memory lane. You remember the time when you met Christ. And if you're honest, even right now, the thought of spending time with Jesus is a joy for you. You would honestly say, the best thing about my life is knowing God himself. Listen, if that's you, that is a work of God in your life. It's not you. It is a work of God in your life, and I am profoundly happy for you. Keep on keeping on. Keep going. If you found the treasure, it is a work of grace in your life. Keep enjoying that treasure till your dying day when you finally then see the treasure face to face. But maybe you're here today, and if you're honest, this parable, as you hear this parable, you hear it with a sense of loss. Maybe you haven't found the treasure. Maybe you're not experiencing God like I'm talking about. Maybe you don't consider all things as lost for the surpassing worth of having a relationship with God himself. Maybe that's different. And if you're honest, you're not treasuring the Lord like that. Listen, if that's you, then there's two things that I want to encourage you to do. Two things that you can do. To enjoy the treasure. He wants you to find the treasure. He wants you to delight in the treasure. You just need to do two things. Here's the first. Number one, make sure you're truly in Christ. Truly. Just going to church does not make you a Christian. That makes you a member of the field. Truly knowing Christ is having a relationship with God himself. An intimate and personal relationship with God himself. How do you get that? Well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then enter into the kingdom of heaven, understanding that the crowning jewel that I get to now experience is a relationship with God himself. That's the treasure So test yourself. Ask yourself, have you ever actually done that or have you just joined a community? The community will not sparkle the way Jesus is a true treasure. The community will not keep you. The community will disappoint you at times. Jesus will never disappoint you. So if you are not obsessed with the treasure, then start here. Make sure you're truly in Christ. And then secondarily, I want to encourage you to work hard to make sure that you daily cultivate your relationship with God. Let me say that again. Make sure that you daily, listen, underline those that are making notes in bold, daily, daily cultivate your relationship with God himself. See, having a relationship with God is very much like having a relationship with a blazing fire. Let me explain. Growing up in Spalding in Lincolnshire in England, there was nothing to do. And I mean zip. It's a country town. It is the Shire on the Lord of the Rings. There is nothing to do. 
We went fishing sometimes. We went swimming. One swimming pool in the town, a small square. Do that once, and then you're bored. So that, well, there wasn't a lot to do. But one thing we did do is my dad would make bonfires for us kids in the back garden. And that was great. Particularly at wintertime, he would make these bonfires. They'd be really high sometimes. He'd really stack up the wood throughout the year. And then we'd finally get to enjoy it. And so there'd be me, my brother, and my sister would be out there in our mittens. Do you remember when mittens used to have a cord all the way on the back? I don't know why that is. It never, anyway, um, so you'd be out there with your mittens. You'd just try to keep warm by the fire. And he would light the fire. And it would always light quick because he'd put petrol on it. Awesome. So he'd light this fire. This thing would take off. And you'd all be standing out there as kids. And it would be amazing. Your face would be warmed by this fire. Your hands and your body would be so warmed by this fire. You'd want to get as close to it as you could. And the flames, they just have something mesmerizing about them, don't they? You look at flames and you're just so affected by it. So you just wanted to spend time by the fire. You're just there. Just enjoying the blaze. But when you're a kid, you, you get distracted by things as well. Don't you get a bit bored? So off I would go at different times. And you maybe you'd go into the bathroom or you'd look around the garden. And what would happen? You'd feel freezing because it's the middle of winter. So you'd run back to the fire because you needed to warm yourself again because you were so cold. That's what a relationship with God is like. Christianity is incredibly basic. If you spend time with God, understanding he is a blazing fire daily, then daily you will find yourself strangely and wonderfully warmed. Strangely and wonderfully warmed by him, amazed at him. Your face will be radiant with having spent time with him. Your hands will be warmed. Your heart will be warmed. You will be enthused for your day. But we don't. We forget. And then we get cold. And we turn up at growth group and say, I just feel very dry right now. Yes! Because you've moved away from the fire. It's not complicated. Listen, we could save thousands of counseling appointments just by understanding this point. Are you spending time with the blazing fire? No. Do that and your life will change. Lecture over. Counseling could be very short. (laughs) You've got to spend time with the Lord. When you spend time with the Lord, your relationship will be cultivated. You'll be amazed at him. You'll be staggered at who he is. You will have a relationship with him. If you don't, you won't. Sundays won't be enough. You're just going to try and warm yourself once a week. You're going to be pretty cold all week. You have to daily. So how do you do that? Well, listen, a couple of quick things as you're making notes. I want you to encourage you to do these things. If you're serious about finding the true treasure of the Lord, of cultivating that relationship. A couple of quick things. Firstly, each and every day, spend time with the Lord in his word. Each and every day. Each and every day, grab this Bible and come to sit by the fire and realize he is speaking to you. This word is God-breathed. This word is alive and active because it is God-breathed. When you spend time with the word in the spirit, he's still speaking to you today. He's still talking to you. God himself, who makes his home in you through the spirit, he's talking to you. But he does it primarily through this word. This word has the ability to have a reviving effect on your souls, to warm you, to make you on fire for the Lord. But you have to get close to it every day to do that. And listen, it's not about... Yeah, I really should do that. No! 
It's what an incredible opportunity that you can. That God himself says, hey, I want to meet with you today. I'm the maker of heaven and earth. I spin the galaxies. I've got a few things I'd love to share with you personally because my son died for you personally. I'd love to be with you. It's not because you should. It's because you can. Because it's such a profound opportunity. Secondarily, I want to encourage you. Each and every day, spend time with the Lord in prayer. Pray. Each and every day, get by that fireplace of his word. Let him speak to you and then pray. You know, one of the things that always affects me about Jesus is so often when the disciples wake up in the morning, they're like, where has he gone again? And where do they find him? Out the back, by himself, praying to his father. He wanted to have a daily commune with his father. He knew he needed the Lord's help. He needed the Father's help. Listen, if Jesus, as the Son of God, as God incarnate, needed to daily spend time with the Father, how much more do you and I need to be spending time with him? John 15 tells us that apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from daily spending time by the fire, you can do nothing. And yet each and every day, if we're honest, we can spend weeks sometimes going, okay, I hear that. Anyway, I'll try. That never cultivates a relationship. Daily. Spend time daily by the fire. Spending time in his word. Spending time in prayer. Listen, if you don't plan for that, I guarantee it will never happen. Think through when are you going to do it and commit to it. It is the greatest opportunity of your life. A fight to read God's word and pray is a fight for your life. It's everything. And then thirdly, I want to encourage you to each and every day spend time with the Lord as a friend who is always with you. Now, this is one of the beautiful things, I think, about spending time with the Lord. I'm all for quiet times. I think they're important. I think it's important that we spend a set time each and every day communing with the Lord. That's how we're going to build that relationship and stand in awe of him. And yet at the same time, if that's like our God slot, and then we get on with our life and we never talk to him again, that's kind of weird. If I just said to Emma, hey, Em, here's what I'm thinking. I'll talk to you every day. I mean, once a day, I'm going to talk to you. And it will be between 7 and 7.30, but let's not talk throughout the day because I'm busy. I'm not quite sure what type of relationship we'd end up having, you know. The great thing about the Lord is through the gift of the Holy Spirit that you received when you became a Christian, both the Father and the Son are in you. And you know what that means? It means they are walking around with you everywhere you go, all of the time, wherever you are. (laughs) So talk to him. Talk to him. Find moments in your day just to adore him. Say, Lord, I, I just walked past that tree. It's staggering to me you made that. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. Then carry on. Just small moments in the days. It's like you're texting him, if you will. Just numerous times where you're talking to the Lord, adoring him, or confessing to him of something you've done. Let's shorten that time. Lord, please, I'm so sorry for what I just did. Will you forgive me? I just wash me clean afresh because I need to get on with my day. Thank him for things. Talk to him about things that you're in need of. Offer supplication. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Lord, I am stressed about what I'm just about to do. Would you please help me? I feel overwhelmed. In the name of Jesus, amen. He's a friend who is always with you. Listen, if you start to do those things, if you daily return to the fire, to spend time with God in his word, spend time in prayer, and then daily throughout the day spend time with him, do you know what's going to happen to you? You'll become like a man who found a treasure in the field 
and then wanted to sell everything he had for the surpassing joy of finding the treasure. The surpassing joy of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord. You know, one of the things that happens when you grow up in the local church, when you spend your entire life in the field, is you have literally thousands of songs stuck in your head. Some good ones, some shockers. But one song that I remember we sang a lot when I first became a Christian was by Mark Pendergrass. And this is what he says. It's very short. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. I want to know you more. I want to love you more. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. You know, church, as we pray for you as pastors and as I pray for you as the lead pastor individually by name at different times, this is my prayer for you. That no matter what else we do as a local church, each member of this church would be able to say, the greatest thing in all my life is knowing the Lord. Truly knowing Him for myself. I get a relationship with Him. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing Him. My friends, the greatest thing that we can ever find in life is the treasure of a genuine relationship with God. And if we don't talk about this and start with this, quite frank, nothing else really matters. This is the foundation and fuel of everything we do as a Christian. And so I want you to know I'm praying for you this year. And this is my prayer for the entire year. That for all of us, we'd find the treasure. And that we'd honestly be able to say, the greatest thing in all my life is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you that you are so wonderfully, lovingly relational. Lord, as I think about what it must have been like before there was even time, with you as the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enjoying a loving, constant communion together. What a beautiful scene that is. But to think now that in your mercy and your grace, you want to draw us into that divine dance is humbling. Lord, I thank you for dying in our place to make it possible for us to come into that relationship with you. I thank you for pursuing us in your love and in your mercy and in your generosity so that we might have that relationship. And Lord, I pray for all of us, every one of us in the room. Would this treasure become our magnificent obsession? Would you be our obsession this year? Would we honestly be able to say the greatest thing in all our lives is knowing you? May that be our story, Lord. May we apply what we've heard by warming ourselves by you each and every day, not because we should, but because in your mercy we can. And may you grow in our eyes as a result. In Jesus' name.